You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at me. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. If you're listening to this on release day, I got to do a super cool thing last night that I'll tell you all about next week. I am very, very tired because I'm recording this at the crack of dawn on Saturday after being out until about 1 a.m. doing Horror Nights with some of my coworkers. And um, yeah, Jen, Jen... Zers really like to do things very late at night, and I am in my 30s and my bones hurt, so <laughs> I had a great time, but my bones my bones hurt real bad this morning. Don't get old, and I'm not even old, but just don't do it. Anyway, this week on Movie Theater Movie Reviews, we've got Barbarian. Now, I only saw like one trailer for this movie before I actually went and saw it, and that's definitely the way to go, because going into this movie completely blind was so much fun. This film is scary. It's funny on purpose in all the right ways. And it is just so much fun. See this in the biggest, fullest, most COVID unfriendly theater you can find. It was an absolute blast with an audience. Now onto this week's topic. This week, we're covering the history of arguably film's oldest genre, the comedy, from mostly the Western American side of things, from its origins to the modern day, and some of the biggest names that shaped the genre along the way. Then we'll briefly go over how the screenwriter's taxonomy handles the genre. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Let's start out easy. What is a comedy film? A lot easier to define the drama. A comedy is a motion picture that focuses on humor and is designed to make the audience laugh. Films in this style traditionally have a happy ending, except for the black comedies, but we'll get to that shortly. In this case, it seems simple. It is simple. We like this. So the one tricky thing with comedy, well... One of the tricky things that I found wasn't so much an issue with drama, and that is the fact that arguably a lot of comedians and their comedic styles within themselves have become genres and subgenres. Yes, there are dramatic actors whom you may prefer, but you don't necessarily know what to expect from film to film. They're playing a different character. They've done a different set of preparations, probably, to play, you know, a union leader a la Norma Ray, or to 
be the flying nun. That's a different set of preparations. But on the other end of that, in the comedy realm, you kind of know what to expect if you're walking into a Seth Rogen or a Wes Anderson or an Abbott and Costello film. The premises may be different, but there's a set of expectations you have for each of those aforementioned individuals. So for this history of the comedy genre I'm about to do will be a little bit of both. It's going to be a history of some of the major subgenres of comedy, as well as several of the comedians and performers and directors whom shaped the whole of comedy. Also, comedy is a bit more of a cultural beast compared to drama. Every country's kind of got their own set of comedy rules. So to make this a little less convoluted and also not three hours long, I'm going to focus primarily on the Hollywood development of comedy, unless it was something that had an influence outside of someone's respective film industries. I'm learning as my go. I tried to add more things in. It got crazy and convoluted and confusing. So I'm just going to make this very simple because these are all supposed to be intro episodes. So let's get into it. The groundwork of modern comedy was laid in 425 BCE when playwright Aristophanes began writing his first of what would be considered the first comedies. Aristophanes developed his type of comedy from the early satyr, which were often highly offensive. In ancient Greece, comedy originated in blue comedy songs or poems talking about penises and were often performed during fertility festivals or gatherings. In poetics, Aristotle called these phallic processions, as they were called, as, quote, base and ugly, which was why he believed comedy was never taken seriously. Some things never change. Aristotle believed that comedy was actually a positive thing as it could make people happy, which he believed to be the ideal state of being. Groundbreaking stuff they were doing in ancient Greece. But at the end of the day, Aristotle just didn't like dirty humor, which is kind of what was popular at that time. Also, the genre of comedy back then was defined by a certain pattern. It basically was they began with like low or base characters with goofy little goals and they end up with some kind of accomplishment which either lightens the initial baseness or reveals the insignificance of their whole plight. Very, it's, you know... Jumping ahead a bit in time, we've got the morality plays of the medieval ages, as we mentioned last week. While we mentioned it for drama, these could also be comedic in nature and actually would develop the art form further. By Shakespeare's time, the term comedy didn't mean comedy as we know it today. Instead, comedies were plays or stories that had a happy ending, usually involving marriages between the unmarried characters. In Italy in the 16th to 18th centuries, a form of comedy known as Commedia dell'arte was insanely popular, giving the genre stock characters for the first time. This included deceitful maids, foolish older men, and just general fools. Commedia would also play a major role in forming modern sketch comedy. Vaudeville, which was French for Voice of the City, originated in France in the 19th century, reaching peak popularity at the turn of the 20th century. Vaudeville became popular after the Civil War in the States when people began seeking out diversified entertainment. Vaudeville shows bridged the gap between the more or less family-friendly circus, not counting the animal abuse, of course, and the burlesque show, which was usually in a strip club, where the comedians had to be as dirty as possible in order to distract men from the naked ladies. Vaudeville was an attempt to clean up comedy and created a comedy industry as a result. Vaudeville shows traveled the country at this time, entertaining the masses, and featured comedians, dancers, magicians, jugglers, trained animals, the list goes on. And it was going really well. 
That was until film made its way into the zeitgeist. Comedy began developing for film right from the jump. The first comedy was directed by Louis Lumiere in 1895 and featured a boy playing a prank on a gardener and his hose. This short was actually featured in the Lumiere's first public screening of cinema in December of that year. It wasn't until around 1912 that the American comedy genre began to emerge. The first comics were trained by performing in the circus, in burlesque, in vaudeville, or pantomime if they came from the UK. Film entrepreneur Max Sennett, soon known as the king of comedy, formed the Keystone Studios in 1912, and it soon was the leading producer of slapstick and comic characters. Senate had hired a crew of former vaudevillians to fill his roster, all of whom were trained to do the physical things he wanted for his films. No training required. Keystone films were usually identifiable thanks to their zany hijinks, their chases, stunts, and gags, which became known as frantic slapstick. If you recognize the name Keystone at all from the history of film, it's likely due to the Keystone Cops, which were a series of very popular shorts. From Keystone even came the first shot of somebody getting pied in the face. The film was A Noise from the Deep from 1913, and the pie-er was Mabel Normand as a farm girl, and the pie-e was Fatty Arbuckle. Arbuckle was the studio's main meal ticket for a decade until his scandals, see my March 28th, 2021 episode on that, destroyed his career. Arbuckle's fall from grace saw the rise of another star from Keystone and Arbuckle's former mentee, Charlie Chaplin. Silent films, for obvious reasons, relied heavily on slapstick comedy as they couldn't exactly be cracking jokes. Slapstick included actions like, well, slapping, but also tripping and falling, methods that had been used in the theater for centuries before they were adopted for the silver screen. For prime examples of slapstick, check out Harold Lloyd's Safety Last, which features the iconic image of Lloyd hanging from a giant clock. There's Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, which featured his character The Tramp, which is one of the most iconic comedy figures of cinema. And finally, Buster Keaton's stunt-filled comic adventure, The General, which features Keaton's signature deadpan face and intense comedic stunts. These three were easily the kings of the genre in their heydays, and slapstick humor would remain popular until the introduction of sound. When sound films took hold in the late 1920s, comedy went from being a purely physical medium to a verbal one as well. Most of the former vaudevillians, whom had become international movie stars, were unable, or in some cases unwilling, to convert to this new era of filmmaking, which required a structure that had not existed in the years leading up to it, and soon many of them found themselves as yesterday's news. As the Great Depression almost immediately followed the development of sound, movie moguls and their directors had to find ways to lure audiences in. This was done by using very suggestive language and situations in addition to the physical comedy they already knew. Mae West is one of the most notable to take advantage of this, but when the Hayes Code was put in place in 1934, Mae's humor was pretty much all but outlawed from the silver screen. Comedy of the 1930s also relied heavily on some of its other new faces. There was W.C. Fields, there was Laurel and Hardy, whom had started as silent film stars and were able to transition to sound thanks to their witty repartee. There was the Marx Brothers, which were a team of five brothers whose films like Duck Soup from 1933 remains a comedy staple to this day. And there was also the Three Stooges. Duck Soup is sometimes referred to as an anarchic comedy, which is a genre featuring random or stream of consciousness type of humor and often mocks authority. 
Another major player was producer Hal Roach, whose company was responsible for other groundbreaking comedy shorts during the 1930s, including the popular Our Gang series that lasted until 1944. The first major subgenre to come out of film comedy was the screwball, made popular by films like Bringing Up Baby from 1938, which was directed by Frank Capra. Screwballs were a spin on a love story, often satirizing the notion in the process. These films were almost always about a smart, savvy woman getting what she wanted at a time when men had pretty much all the power. These films were slash are known for their witty dialogue, crazy plots, and heavy use of sarcasm. Also of this genre is one of my favorite movies. It happened one night from 1934, which features another convention often portrayed in the screwball genre, which is the differing classes of the love interests. His Girl Friday is considered the apex of this genre. Screwball comedies in part borrowed from the theater genre of farce, which would eventually become a film genre in its own right. A farce is a comedy about a ridiculous or improbable situation, and farces like the aforementioned Marx Brothers' Duck Soup and W.C. Fields' The Bank Dick held their own against the screwballs of the 1930s and 40s. During World War II, for, you know, slightly obvious reasons, most straight comedy films were a bit more serious in tone, focusing on topics that circled around politics, materialism, and the war, and were aimed at a mature audience than the decades preceding films. Films that find humor in these and other serious topics like war, illness, and death are often called black comedies. This is actually different than a dark comedy, which is slightly lighter in tone. Comedy team Albert and Costello are probably the most popular duo of the early 1940s, though there is certainly competition for that mantle. Their films were more quirky in nature than much of the comedies of this era and included outlandish plots involving the duo going to Mars and meeting pretty much every monster on the Universal Pictures roster. Also, arguably, buddy comedy could be considered a genre of comedy as well. Family comedies were also quite popular in the 1940s, notably the Andy Hardy films, which ran from 1937 to 1946, covering the titular character's journey into manhood. A 1958 reboot was made in an attempt to revamp the franchise, but that never worked out. There were also social comedies and satires from this time, which have been categorized as sophisticated comedy. This subgenre finds humor in the lives and activities of the rich, affluent individuals of the day and are chock full of witty and sophisticated dialogue with plots circling around either love or possessions. A classic example of this genre is George Cooker's Dinner at Eight from 1933, and it would also go on to inspire films like Breakfast at Tiffany's from 1961. Abbott and Costello would ultimately be eclipsed by the wacky childlike comedy of Jerry Lewis and his crooning straight man, Dean Martin. Their film debut, though as you remember, they were a lounge act long before this, was My Friend Irma from 1949. They made a total of 16 movies together between 49 and 1956, breaking up after their last teaming in the comedy musical Hollywood or Bust. By the 50s, in part due to the HUAC trials, comedy films were typically squeaky clean, formulaic, and they were courtship romantic comedies like Rock Hudson and Doris Day. Like, think Pillow Talk from 1959. If you've ever seen that movie, that's kind of what all of 1950s comedy looked like, or most, not all of it, most of it did. They didn't want to put a toe out of line because then the government was going to jump down their throats with both feet. 
Not all of it was Super G, though. There were sexual comedies like The Seven Year Itch from 1955 and Some Like It Hot from 1959, starring Marilyn Monroe. They were called sexual comedies. They're not really super risque. The sexual part, arguably, was due to its star merely being in them more than anything else. Some Like It Hot also popularized the usage of dressing and drag as a comedic element. This led to future films like Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire. In the 1960s, a new genre of comedy known as the absurd comedy was spearheaded by a team of British comedy writers and performers, starting with their TV show Monty Python's Flying Circus. Beginning in the 1970s, they produced a series of Monty Python movies that are now regarded as some of the funniest comedies ever made. By the 1960s, television was fully murdering the film industry. Comedy was especially hard hit because sitcoms like I Love Lucy were providing people with their haha fixes from the family living room. Film was going to have to find a way to get audiences back by showing them things at the theater that couldn't be transmitted into their homes. This led to films like The Graduate from 1967, which was a descendant of the sex comedies of the 1950s. The Graduate was revolutionary due to its acknowledgement of the sexual revolution in a very risque manner. Today, that movie could probably, it's been a hot minute since I've seen it, so I'm probably forgetting something, be shown on basic cable with a few, few modifications. I'm sure there's something in there. But at the time, that movie was considered dirty. The 1940s trend of comedies for a more intellectual audience continued to develop into the 1960s with films like Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove from 1964, which used satire to address social change. Dr. Strangelove is considered a black comedy as it deals with the incredibly serious situation of a nuclear war. Another big name to come out of the 60s was Mel Brooks, who began his directorial career with the film The Producers in 1967. Brooks has become a staple of comedy with films like Young Frankenstein from 1974, Blazing Saddles, also 74, and Spaceballs from 1987. Comedy was also developing in the 1960s underground as filmmaker John Waters used his highly offensive sense of humor to create the darkest satires of the American dream life, whatever imaginable. This included films like Pink Flamingos. I promise you, if you see this film once, you will talk about it for a very long time afterward. In fact, Waters did so many weird and disgusting things in his films that audience members would either think he was a genius or just like a weird pervert. Waters' work would pave the way for the gross-out comedies, which began pouring out of the studios in the late 1970s, starting more or less with 1978's Animal House. Most of the National Lampoon films honestly fit under here as well, the gross-out comedy, and arguably, National Lampoon films are kind of their own genre in their own right. Other films that fit under here is Revenge of the Nerds, Porky's, and scores of other 80s movies that aged into a new millennium quite poorly. In the 1970s, Woody Allen began his film career, and while his work, and, well, him especially, has been called out for showing and doing all manners of not-okay things, Allen's comedies are a staple of the genre as a whole and were gateway pieces for modern comedy to develop, namely Annie Hall, so he does need to be mentioned, but that's as much as we're going into him here. The 1980s would bring a litany of teenager films, including Fast Times at Ridgemont High from 1982 and Sixteen Candles from 1984, the latter of which was directed by John Hughes, easily the most iconic director-writer of the teen film genre. 
Many of these movies are about teenage love and romance or coming of age. And movies about the same topics, but about adults, would become their own genre in the form of the rom-com. The most prolific director doing these in the 1980s was probably Rob Reiner, whom directed films like The Princess Bride and When Harry Met Sally. Romantic comedies in Hollywood really hit their apex in the 1990s. You got films like My Best Friend's Wedding, Four Weddings and a Funeral, and Notting Hill. Basically anything with Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant from the 90s. More often than not was probably a rom-com. The 80s would also see an increase in zany slapsticky films again. Think Airplane from 1980. And this type of humor would see a huge resurgence in the 1990s. Speaking of the 1990s, during this period of time, actors created larger-than-life characters that relied on exaggerated speaking, movement, and expression, similar to the slapstick comedy from the silent era. Of all the comedic actors from the 1990s that did this, Mike Myers, Jim Carrey, and Adam Sandler particularly dominated the genre and became international household names as a result. I mean, think about it. People still quote lines from Austin Powers, Ace Ventura, and Billy Madison, amongst many of their other projects to this day. Nearly 30 years on for some of those movies. Don't want to make you feel old. But Ace Ventura, I think, is almost 30 years old. The first one, at least. Thanks mainly in part to the sketch show Saturday Night Live, an influx of films starring members of the cast, starting with John Belushi, would become popular. This began with Animal House, but would go on to include films like The Blues Brothers, which also starred former SNL alum Dan Aykroyd. Both of these films were written and directed by John Landis, who would become an icon of the comedy genre in his own right. SNL is also where the genre would get Steve Martin, The Jerk, Eddie Murphy, Beverly Hills Cop, Bill Murray, Caddyshack, Adam Sandler, how how about Happy Gilmore this time, and so many other performers and films. SNL's kind of become a feeding ground for a lot of comedic actors. Speaking of Bill Murray, his work with Harold Ramis would yield films like Ghostbusters, which Ramis co-wrote with Dan Aykroyd, as well as Caddyshack. Later, films featuring the characters of SNL would have their big screen debuts, with films like Wayne's World and Coneheads being among the first. The 90s also saw the emergence of the if it's good, it's great, and if it's bad, it's horrendous genre of the mockumentary, which are spoofs on documentaries that are framed as serious. Some of the most popular mockumentaries include This is Spinal Tap, which documents the career of a rock group, Waiting for Guffman, about an amateur theater group, and Best in Show, which looks at the world of competitive dog shows. The modern apex of this, of course, is probably the Borat films, especially the first one, which is a cultural mainstay to this day. God help us. If I hear one more person go, my wife, uh, find a new joke. Another big name to come out of the 90s comedy whom wasn't an SNL alum is Jim Carrey, though he actually did audition for the show Fun Fact. Carrey's films like The Mask, Ace Ventura, and Dumb and Dumber would make the actor a worldwide comedy icon. Modern comedy, looking at the last 20 years or so, seems to be pretty much an amalgamation of many of the trends from the previous 100 years. It's still pretty dominated by the SNL alums like Will Ferrell, Tina Fey, Kristen Wiig. All of them are on that show. It's a very, it's still very SNL forward, especially now because the show's kind of had a resurgence in, in prominence. So yeah, basically everybody but Melissa McCarthy was like an SNL right now. For modern producers, even though he's also a director, there's Judd Apatow, who did films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Superbad. There's also Adam McKay, who does films like The Big Short, which are very dry in tone, but are actually considered comedies. Also, Don't Look Up, 
they're calling it a comedy. I disagree. But, you know. Finally, there's Wes Anderson, whose films from a design perspective alone can probably be considered a genre. His comedies are highly stylized from the way the characters speak and interact to the set design to the editing. You never have to question whether or not you're watching a Wes Anderson film. So yeah, that's a very speedy speed run of the Western comedy, of the American comedy, and how it's developed over time. Now that you've gotten this, you know, brief history of comedic films that we will build upon later, let's learn how to categorize them via the screenwriter's taxonomy, which, if you forgot, is was developed by screenwriter Eric R. Williams. I'm not going to rehash what all of this is. If you haven't listened to the last episode on drama, all of this is broken down and explained there. Comedy, surprisingly, is a bit more organizable than drama was. I didn't come across any arguments really stating that comedy wasn't a genre like I had last week. So I was very relieved because this was a lot easier to write. So comedy has 12 types versus dramas 10. They are the bathroom comedy, which is exactly what it sounds like. These movies feature risque topics and dirty jokes dealing with often bodily functions and, you know, just gross. It's just, they're kind of gross. This is, this is your animal house. The comedy of ideas, which is a genre that uses a comedic lens to deal with serious topics leading to hilarious social commentaries. Even though it was a TV show, this is where you get like MASH. MASH was also a movie. The comedy of manners, which are full of witty insults and observations. This is where you get the graduate. Dark comedy is easy. It covers taboo topics in a humorous manner. Deadpool. Very, very dark comedy. The farce features outlandish and exaggerated actions to entertain. That's your some like it hot. You've got the observational comedy, which finds humor in the mundanity of life. Mm, not a lot of great choice. Like Fast Food Nation is an ob- ob- observational comedy. You've got the parody or spoof, which finds its humor by emulating a pre-existing work. Scary movie franchise, textbook example. There's the sex comedy, which, you guessed it, focuses on sex and anything kind of going immediately around that thing. Knocked up, that's a sex comedy. Or 40-Year-Old Virgin, that also works. There's the situational comedy, which is a combination of a group of stock characters whom are thrown into a situation outside of their comfort zones. That's where you get your princess bride. There's the slapstick comedy, which is characterized by its usage of physical comedy above all else. This is your Three Stooges, your Charlie Chaplin, your Laurel and Hardy. And finally, there's the surreal comedy, which includes storytelling and characters that don't really anchor into the real world. That's your Monty Python. So like last week, I'm going to take an example and I'm going to break it down. The Oscars, famously not big into comedies. So I took a peek at the Golden Globes, who actually have a category devoted to comedy and musicals as well, even though that isn't a genre. But, you know, that's the least of the Hollywood foreign press's problem. And this was interesting because quite a few films I called dramas last week were considered comedies by the Hollywood foreign press. So, you know, genre theory is crazy. But yeah, Licorice Pizza, Don't Look Up. Um, There's another one I'm totally blanking. Yeah, they were all considered comedies, but I had classified them as dramas. That's also actually caused controversy, like baby controversy, at like the award shows because of what gets considered a comedy when it's more serious. Little did they know, genre theory has no rules. <laughs> or it does have rules, but it's up for interpretation. So with all that in mind, why don't we take Once Upon a Time in Hollywood from 2019? We know it's a comedy, at least according to the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. But where would it fit in beyond that into the screenwriter's taxonomy? It was a little tricky, and I spent way more time on this than I thought I would need to. 
So I guessed it fits best under a farce. Its super genre is probably life, mostly because none of the other ones fit. I almost said action, but there's not a ton of that in there until the end. So I'm sticking with life. Its macro genres are historical, showbiz, mission, and bromance. And once taken down all the way to the micro like I did last week, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a comedy, farce, life, historical alternate, showbiz culture, mission tale, bromance, strong bonds. Honestly, I wanted to tackle a Tarantino just because he's a hard one to pin down, which is why I picked it. Because you could make an argument for a decent chunk of the macro genres to apply to his films. Also, there's not a cult micro genre and there probably should be. That's just my two cents. So yeah, that's comedy from its earliest days to now, how it developed within film, and how it can be categorized today. Comedy was one of the harbingers of theory and cinema and remains one of the most important ones to this day. From ancient Greece to now, the comedy has allowed us to laugh, whether it be from a joke, a situation, or the existential nature of life. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode when I can remember. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. There's also Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee so I can survive being out until one o'clock in the morning with a bunch of Zoomers whose feet apparently don't hurt ever, even when standing on concrete for eight hours. I'm, I'm in so much pain. I've also got merch. Check it out, the link in the show notes. Next week, the history of the genre that gives you all the thrills and chills the horror movie. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.